Welcome to the RevTech Revolution podcast. Today's episode is hosted by Ken Lorenz, VP of Sales at Riva. He is joined by Azred Deljanin, VP of Infrastructure and Security at YieldStream. They talk about how startups can stay secure, how AI is influencing compliance, and how Yield Street is changing the way people invest. All of this and more on the RevTech Revolution podcast. So, Ezra, nice to meet you. Uh, glad to have you on the show today. Always a pleasure. Tell me a little bit about your background. When did you first get interested in technology? Sure. So, my background is multidisciplinary. Um, and so, uh, I actually went to business school. Um, I have a degree in real estate investments um, from Baruch College. You know, my question, the question of how did I sort of get into technology was uh, graduating into 2008 financial crisis where real estate fell down uh, was, was a good sort of kick in the shins and say, hey, you know, you might want to do something else. Uh, and I was already kind of thinking about it. I had already worked in real estate for about seven years. Uh, when I graduated, I spent about a year working in commercial real estate, wasn't really loving it, wasn't really feeling challenged. Um, and I have been a technology junkie my whole life. I've been a tinkerer, had built my first computer at around 15 years old. I remember my first computer being an old IBM Aptiva 133 megahertz Intel Pentium. Um, so you know, I go all the way back and I had been building computers for gaming purposes for friends, uh, had been running Linux very early on and eventually just pivoted right into technology. And so I started in uh, networking and hosting um, and eventually the CTO of this company hired me to the last company I was at, which was LearnVest um, and thus began my journey into sort of building applications for um, financial institutions and startups. That's great. So by the way, we just moved over to the B list of questions for you making me feel so old. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, just uh, a little bit of comparison. I uh, I went to school for computer science, thought I wanted to do AI research in Berkeley back in the late 80s. Uh, my first computer was an Apple IIe knockoff, uh, the old Franklin Ace. Um, but somehow in my programming classes, I missed the cards uh, in doing Fortran, went right into uh, some of the more modern programming languages. But I, I totally get it, right? Technology is, is something that's exciting and, and fun. But you know, uh, I, I wish in real estate there was the ability to learn Fortran and COBOL because I would have made a lot more money coming out of school than working in real estate in the middle of a financial crisis because they were begging for mainframe developers even then. Well, so, you know, you go go back, I guess, what, well, we're not going to say how many years, but go back X number of years. Did you ever see yourself in cybersecurity and risk management? No, actually, I think that, well, cybersecurity, yes. I mean, one of the first things I like to do was go to security conferences because of the sort of eclectic environment those conferences brought. Uh, and the melding of minds, right? So you had tinkers, you had hackers, you had uh, ethical hackers, you had folks who had different political opinions, and it was this big conference of of different ideas. So yeah, I liked cybersecurity, and 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 I kind of saw the writing on the wall early on. Computers would become more complex. 
computing, high-performance computing, cloud, all of these things would become more complex, thus bringing more and more security issues uh, front and center. Um, and so th that did interest me, but it never was my sort of primary um, discipline, right? My, my primary discipline was in site reliability engineering. I liked make systems work. Uh, I like to keep them working. I like to keep them performant. And as a side effect of all of those things, security kind of came. When I got into sort of leadership, um, you couldn't take a backseat to security. You had to make it purposeful. Um, and I think that that's true in any organization, but especially in you know financial tech, you know fintech and health tech and um, payment tech, any one of those sort of highly regulated industries, security is front and center. And you can see that with the sort of SEC and CFTC putting out new drafts uh, every year about new cybersecurity rules or things that might come into examinations. It's 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 one of those things that's no longer back office and behind the scenes or in the basement. It's front and center, uh, whether it's risk or cybersecurity or or, or or processes to help protect organizations. Um, I see these things as you know number one. Uh, and 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 tied with uh, building reliable and performing systems. Excellent. So I, I got to ask you a personal question. Are, are you sure you didn't want to be James Bond growing up? Because you you appear to be a man of mystery. Um, doing a little bit of research, getting to know you online. You're not online, and it it, it asked me to you know it, it kind of gets me to beg the question: Should cybersecurity professionals be anonymous out there online? It seems like you've taken that approach. I take the approach of show what you want to show. And so what do I like to show? People can find that I'm here at Yield Street, but they don't need to know about my personal life, right? Uh, I'd prefer to keep anything about me professional. Um, because at the end of the day, I think that there's some... It, if you take the security tinfoil hat approach to this problem, you're, you're hiding yourself because uh, you have something you may have something to hide, or you, or you, uh, you don't want somebody to see, or you feel like you have that you know inalienable right to be private. Um, and I think you know the way data is collected about folks, um, that data can be used against you or misconstrued to be against you. Now that said. Some folks are perfectly happy with being posted online and having, you know, their sort of personal lives out there. And I commend them for that. I think that that's what's grown. Uh, I think the, the, the beauty of the internet is that you have a choice to do whatever it is that you want to do and be whatever personality you want. Um, and I don't live my life online. I live my life, you know, here and in, 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 in person. And so uh, that's why I've chosen to kind of not be readily searchable for lots of things online. It's a, it's an approach I'd like to maybe consider for myself at some point, but being on the sales side, unfortunately, I've got to be a little more visible than I like to be, but I agree with the professional versus personal. You won't find a lot of personal about me online either. Yeah. And, and I think, I think what's, be what's beautiful about that is, is, you know, you can have conversations like these where the questions aren't already teed up. <laughs> I heard you like this. I saw you posted about that. Like, you know, now I'm in a precarious position because maybe I didn't ask you those questions. Um, and so kind of, kind of, you know, fielding that question back, um, you know, what's your background and, and sort of how did you get into uh, this, this space and, and thinking about security and the sort of uh, sales 
from a sales and CRM perspective? So that, that's a great question. And, and unfortunately, I've got to delve a little bit into the personal to explain that story, but it's a good one. So I, I mentioned I was going to school for artificial intelligence research back in the late 80s. Uh, met a woman who is now my wife of 30 plus years. And uh, she said, you know, I've got some partners that are looking for developers. We do accounting software. And I said, gosh, artificial research in Berkeley or accounting software, but be with this fantastic gal. Made the hard dog right into accounting software and uh, been an ERP and CRM ever since. But coming from that development background um, and starting an ERP, you know, back in the early 90s, CRM didn't exist, right? We, we had, what do they call them, PIMs, uh, personal information managers and, and all kinds of tools like that. What got me interested in CRM was my background, led me down a path of saying, well, how do we make CRM valuable, not just to the organization, but to the individual as well, whether it's a manager or a sales individual, right? They've got to get value from the system. And so I'd say, well, I wouldn't say, I, I, for the last 10 years now, I've exclusively been in the CRM space and CRM integration space. So it's been a wild journey. Yeah. It's funny. It's funny that you mentioned PIMS. So I, uh, I remember growing up um, and so I've, I'm born and raised in New York city and, and my mom worked in commercial buildings uh, she was she was part of uh, maintenance and now runs maintenance and you know in, in commercial buildings here in Manhattan. And one of the things I remember were seeing these PIMs, uh, not only seeing these PIMs, but then seeing these giant Rolodexes. And then and then and then I go and ask and and I, and I walk around some of the old offices sometimes, and I'm always like, do they still have a Rolodex? Do they still have a PIM? And would it be better if they went to something like Salesforce or HubSpot to kind of get their goal across, right? Uh, and then, and then you realize that 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 Rolodex, that PIM, is everything. And so, to our CR, you know, to most organizations, that CRM is probably everything. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. And then when I think about, I guess, your product, Riva, right? You know, that concept of who can see what during and throughout your sales process is is pretty important, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think the kind of bring this back to security for a little bit. Part of the reason we exist is that many of our customers don't want to just automatically synchronize every conversation and every meeting, right? There's sensitive information, whether it's PII data like social security numbers, driver's license numbers, et cetera, or maybe even worse, things that would set off an SEC violation, right? Material non-public information. And so we're, we do a really good job of ensuring that those patterns and the, that type of information doesn't get sent over to CRM at all or gets redacted or, or through role hierarchies is controlled the right way. So, you know, I think uh, people think about CRM adoption quite a bit. And the one question that I've always had is, is CRM adoption measured by how many times somebody logs in? or how much they contribute and get value from the data contained within the CRM system. And if you limit the amount of data that can go in for security purposes, you've got to strike that balance between what's usable and relevant, but also secure. How do you think so, the best organizations kind of use, well, one I would say is, you know, from, a, from, a, from, an ER, from a CRM perspective, 
right? And then I'm going to, I'm going to take the ERM approach here, the enterprise risk management approach here um, and say like, well, where the data feeds come from is, is particularly important. One is the data normalized and clean and, 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 and do we have integrity of the data from a risk management perspective? I, I'd say like, you know, having that permissions matrix is, is super important when you're looking at a CRM. What can you see? What's encrypted? What's not encrypted? And, and is it encrypted for you and not encrypted for somebody else? But I think lastly, is, is, is just that finer point of like, well, you know, you can have all of these things and all of these protections. And I think a lot of security companies struggle with this and, and security teams as well. What's the business value that you're adding by adding, you know, some level of hurdle or security to this, right? Are you saving it revenue? Are you making it difficult? Are you enhancing the property? Um, and, I, and I think that every tool that we kind of use in this business context, right, security at the end of the day is only useful if, if it's providing protection, but, but not getting in the way of revenue generation. Are, are, you, are you promoting the, the, the benefit uh, that the business needs but by, by implementing these security controls? And so I think it's like a fine balance. Your CRM is your ecosystem where you can go and sell and protect data and 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 uh, um, understand uh, client relationships and 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 the relationships between those clients. But you got to get it right because you know it's 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 folks' data at stake. Uh, it's your business data at stake, and 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 it's really important to uh, make everyone in the organization aware as to why you're doing the things you're doing in, in that CRM from a security perspective, not that you're in the way, but, but to protect you know, both the, the company and the user. Well, so, so that, that leads me down a really interesting question. I meant to ask you a little bit deeper in, the, in this conversation, but I'll ask it now. Um, I know you've worked for a couple of different startups. How do you create that culture of compliance, but but doing that in a shared model at Yield Street. Yeah, so I think what was really important to me at other organizations where I saw this, you know, I, I didn't have always a stake in the game and in, in implementing sort of compliance and security measures really until my last startup, which was which was at LearnVest. And I, and I got that, I had done that much later on. I had done that prior to the acquisition at Northwestern Mutual. But you know, when I think about how you gain adoption of these things, I think it's, I think it's, there's a couple of prongs in all of this. One is how early do you do it? Right. And some folks say like, well, maybe you don't need it at 50, but I think you need some semblance of those ideas as early as you can, even at five, even at two, right. I'm going to make a conscious effort to protect my data given my business processes. And so you kind of have to envision your business processes and, and ensuring that you have guardrails along the way. And so kind of how do you do that, right? I don't believe in reinventing the wheel unless your company is big enough or has more complex problems than the wheel already provides, right? So choose a framework, right? And be, and be very justified as to why you're using that framework. Why does this particular framework work for you and your business? Whether it's uh, uh, COSO-related controls or or, or ISO-related controls, or NIST-related controls? Why do these things matter to you and your business? Once you've kind of gone from there, I think you need to share that rationale with the rest of your organization, right? And so I think security, as much as it is control, is education, right? 
you know, you know, now not to pick up the phone when somebody calls you and says, uh, Hey, I need your login information. I'm from city. Can you provide it to me? You know, you're getting fished over the phone. Every company has told you by now, like, don't provide financial information over the phone. We won't ask you for it. Right. And so I think it's just that, right. Why are we using this security framework? Right. We're asking you to be a part of it. We're asking you to help us because security is not a, a, a one team does it. Security is an entire organization believes in it and, and, and uses its practices to be able um, to implement it, right? Um, I think that that's super important. And then you kind of build training programs and processes along the way, right? And measure their performance, right? And so when I think about you know, what we did here at Yield Street, one of the first things we did was, okay, great, we're going to implement security awareness training, right? But I think that's only a piece of the puzzle. Right, security awareness training, you do it once a year. By the end of the year, you forget. And so then you think about, well, what are all the things that are that are impacting your, your organization? Uh, uh, what threats might you have? Right. And so I think every company has the, the phishing threat. And so you do phishing exercises and you do phishing remedial training and you send out reminders and you do curated trainings. Right. And so I think if you kind of think about the 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 two or three prongs that I'd like to use from a building a security practice at any organization it's start with you know the uh, start with the compliance sort of framework you want to use to educate your users onto the kinds of threats and the reasons why we're protecting that data and then three measure the performance of your sort of security KPIs right you know, are you blocking phishing? Are things being reported? What is your training percentage? How are folks understanding the business? And, and, and keep reiterating that fact in conjunction with the business context, right? You know, Yield Street is investor first. And so the security of an investor is, is, is a part of that goal that is investor first. So maybe a, a little bit off the wall question related to that, but, you know, things pop in your head every once in a while and you got to take advantage of them. So when, when you think about the employees at Yield Street and you think about some of the things you just talked about, education and whatnot, do you have a bigger challenge with employees that are, let's say, baby boomers or millennials versus Gen Z, Gen X in abiding by and, and going along with those security issues? Or is there a group in particular that is easier or harder to manage? I think... I don't think it's broken down by by generation. I think it's broken down by role, at least in my experience, right? And so uh, the sales team is like, oh, that's a deal. That, that, that could be interesting, right? This is, this is something that we can originate. Uh, click this link here and, and, and now you have a problem, right? Or, or somebody in, in a sort of a, a, a support aspect, right? Investor relations or, or, or some sort of client-facing role, right? Um, they're receiving and fielding requests all day. And sometimes, you know, it's the end of the day and you're tired and you're, you're not really paying attention and, 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 and you might make that mistake, right? And so what does the security team do in that regard? Well, you, you kind of take a risk-based approach, right? Your, your users who you might deem uh, uh, higher risk, um, you implement additional controls, uh, additional training. Uh, you can do this with technology. You can do this with training courses, you can do this with workshops. I, I think that, you know, uh, 
it's not one size fits all, right? The the engineer who just started, or 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 somebody who's a you know lower or mid level engineer who has that sort of technology background may not get caught by these things. But then you see what happens with the sort of lapsus hacks over the last couple of weeks, right? It was engineers. It was the best engineers. It was the systems administrators who know that this is probably a problem that get owned. And so I think the big thing you got to sort of weigh out is understanding your environment, looking for anomalies, assessing the risk of your, your users, and, and, and really just educating and making security a forefront. And you have to do it in a way where they trust the security team is keeping their business goals in, in, in their sort of best interest, right? I don't do security here for security's sake. I do it to protect our investor, to protect our users, to protect our reputation as a business. This is why we do it. This is why we do it this way. And I think it's important that you uh, continue to do that. So let me shift gears just a little bit, um, and, and let's let's plug Yield Street for for a second. So the concept behind Yield Street I find very interesting, right? And it's it's I think is the way you've described it, democratizing the ability for everyday Joes to maybe it's my interpretation, everyday Joes to be able to get access to investment vehicles that they wouldn't have otherwise gotten to. Talk talk a little bit about the model, if you would. I, I think our viewers or listeners would love to hear more about Yield Street. Yeah, so Yield Street is is definitely an interesting product. Uh, it's it's a complex product on the inside, but on the outside, it makes a lot of sense, right? He, I'll give you an example of one of our most recent products, uh, the the Art Equity Fund, right? And so, you know, there are art is a specifically opaque market, right? You can't really, you can't, you don't know what's there. I mean, and, and, and art is a very subjective and, and the value of art is not objective, right? And so, you know, here you are kind of looking at art and you're looking at the auction houses and you might be looking at what these things are. Now, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an average Joe. I, I'm not an art guy. Uh, I look at my portfolio and I realize that I'm 100% in stocks and equities, Right. And Kramer on MSNBC says, diversify, 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 right? <laughs> I think MSNBC or is it CNBC? Not really sure. Uh, I just remember Kramer screaming at me. Um, so, you know, when I think about that, I think, well, great. Here, here is something that's cool. I mean, I've heard of Basquiat. I've heard of, you know, I've heard of a few of the, uh, I've heard of Banksy. It would be cool to own a piece of that, Right. Where do I start? Well, I'm, I'm not going to go to Sotheby's. I'm not going to go to Phillips and, and, and go buy a piece. I'd like to have a piece of it, right? Uh, or a piece of a lot of it. Um, and, and I think that historically, these were available in, in again, in, in a sort of in an opaque market. Um, but Yield Street's bringing these things more front and center, more available to retail investors. Uh, and, and I think that's right, really cool. What, what would you say is working best for you to attract some of those new investors or investors that wouldn't have all otherwise gone down this kind of a route? I think it's being uh, entrenched in the space for, for quite a while now. So Yield Street's been around for a, over six years, I th- maybe seven. Uh, I've been here for about three and a half, uh, and I've been an investor at Yield Street for four. So, you know, when I kind of think about that, um, I think there hasn't really been a lot of these companies in the space that long, right? And every year, 
we become more and more of a name. So I think it's a few things. One is our diversification of assets, right? Whether you want to get into private business credit or ARC or any one of these things, I think that's attractive to investors. You're kind of giving them a choice. It's like walking into a BMW BMW dealership, right? Uh, BMW's philosophy is a, a, a car for every butt, right? Um, so... So, you know, you can have the sort of big X7 and, and, and we have those big, big, big deals where we're, we're paying, you know, we're looking at, you know, 19 to 25% yields. And then we have those sort of long, shorter term, lower risk deals, like a 330, right? Um, uh, we we want to have a product for every investor. And I, and I think that that's been beneficial for us. Outstanding. So let's, let's have a little bit of fun. Let's, sure. let's kind of shift gears here for a second. So um, I, as, as listeners of the podcast know, I like to do a, a couple of lightning rounds of questions. And they, these are really easy, right? Personal opinion. Now, the catch is you can't give away any phishing information. No problem. Um, so, so, you know, it's, it's easy stuff. Like yesterday was May the 4th, right? So Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars. Good answer, personally. Um, I don't know if you can see it. There's a Darth Vader back behind me. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Mac or PC? It's a good question. Um, or Linux. Well, on Mac. I mean, I mean, Mac for business, Linux for everything else. All right. So now, trick question. You mentioned BMW. BMW or Aston Martin? You're talking about the racing team or the car? The car. BMW. All right. The mountains or the beach? The mountains. All right, we'll we'll stop there. There might there might be more depending on how old you make me feel. Sure. <laughs> did, did any of those answers make you feel old? Nope. No, nope. okay. that was all good. Good. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we've talked about Yield Street. We we've talked a bit about compliance. Maybe let's drill in a little bit on compliance related specifically to CRM and, and CRM or let's say tech stack topics in general. Um, one of the one of the things that we notice at Riva is that a lot of a lot of industries are moving forward around revenue stack tech stacks where they're adding a lot of capabilities um, around sales enablement, sales uh, engagement, etc. I don't know that we're necessarily seeing it called that in fin- in financial services. Is, is that something that you're seeing as well, or is that concept just not getting across out to the public? I don't see it here at Yield Street, and 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 I think I think it depends on the product, right? And I think financial institutions now. I think fintech is 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 one side of things, and and these companies are you know maybe a little older than a decade and as early as last week, you know, opening, right? And so, you know, you have you have some companies who are like, yeah, it's 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 you know, RevOps or or, or the sort of RevStack. But then you have these, you know, these entrenched organizations, uh, these large global institutions. And I don't think they're thinking about those things at all. I think it's still CRM, right? But that, what I think that they're looking at is is the way the the data gets there, the integrity of that data. Right, um, how that data evolves over time, and, and really how you can sort of tell, you know, how the, I guess, the performance of every metric in that data. So I'll give you an example. Right, um, wh- why would somebody's income matter in in a fintech organization may not matter in a health tech organization, right? 
Um, and so I think it's, I think it's really looking at like, are you, are you getting the right pieces of data in for the sales folks? And then from a compliance perspective, right? You know, each and every type of, of, of industry kind of has to look at data in a different way, right? HIPAA looking at data that everything has to be auditable, right? You need to be able to know how that data got there, who looked at it and when, where in FinTech is it's, it's less of that who looked at it and when, and it's, can you see it or not? And how did you use it? Uh, and, and, you, and you can see that with the sort of like books and records things going on with the SEC. And um, so, you know, to kind of go back on your question, what's involved in, in, in sort of a CRM, RevOps, tech stack? I think, uh, not to throw names out there, but, but it's just an easy one for probably your listeners to understand, but like a, a customer data platform like Segment, for example, you know, you have events firing on your website. You want to register those events. Those events might be, you know, somebody signed up, the information they signed up with going to your CRM automatically. I think it's that. I think the big thing is how are you enriching the data in your CRM? How are you making educated choices about the data that goes to your CRM? And 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 how are you how are you sort of protecting the integrity of that data? Um, and, and, and how much fidelity does it have, right? And so from a pure compliance standpoint, I think this is a little difficult because you sort of see this now with, with privacy laws, uh, whether it's CCPA, GDPR, Colorado, New York, there's talks about a federal law to, you know, going on right now about a federal privacy law. It's, it's, you know, am I compliant with privacy rules when I get that data there? Um, am I compliant with compliance rules, uh, you know, ISO 27701 or, or, or your sort of like COSO rules for privacy? Am I, am I putting data there in the right place? Do folks know I'm collecting it? Um, and and, and are, my, are my team members using it in the right way? Um, and so I think, I think the best products are ones that can give you that picture, right? Given a compliance alternative, uh, we can do this for you. So we were talking about RevStack, and let's sprinkle in uh, AI and ML into this conversation for a moment. Yep. In your mind, FinTech obviously has to pay attention to that from a security and compliance standpoint. Where, where do you think that falls or what compliance risk do you think AI presents to FinTech? I think the whole big thing around AI and ML to me is much more bias, right? So like, I mean, if you think about AI and ML in its in its you know sort of rudimentary design, right? Here is an algorithm we're running against this set of data. Whether that algorithm runs in somebody else's environment or in yours is really the question, right? So if it runs in your environment, have you controlled the blast radius of this AI or ML running amok? Um, or if you're connecting to a third party and that's doing assessments, what are they doing with that data? What do they see? right? How can you know that they're looking at that data, doing something with it, giving it back to you and getting rid of it on their end, right? And so when I think about, you know, organizations in general, one of the things that you always hear is like, what are the sort of minimum compliance standards an organization has to meet? And one of those, you know, one, you know, five to 10 things is, do you have a strong third-party risk management practice, right? What does your, does your, does your risk organization understand what this AI ML organization slash algorithm is doing with your data um, and, and, and how it's manipulating it. And so, 
you know, at the highest level, I think that that's less of a concern. If you are, if you are somebody who is developing AI and ML, um, um, you, you are a sort of technology first organization and we're going to assess you on your technology security practices. Right. But I think what's broader there and from a compliance perspective, I think it's less around security and much more around the sentiments you gain from that data and the biases that that these AI ML algorithms um, um, create or, or 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 sort of exemplify based on what is in your data already. And I think it's just much more an ethical concern uh, as opposed to a security concern. That, that's a that's a great answer. I, I think a lot of people are uneducated today about what AI and ML is all about and where that's going to go. And I think that that was really good advice. So I'm I'm watching our clock here. We've got a little bit of time left, and and I'm I'm dying to know. You mentioned because you told me I didn't find it online that you're a Sebastian Vettel fan. I am. So what what attracted you to to Sebastian Vettel? So when I first started watching Formula One, he was the the young leader in that space, right? I think it was I think it was 2012 or 2013 when I started watching it, and he won that year. And he was just the fastest guy in the grid. And, and, you know, having been seeing who the champion is in your first year and, and kind of identifying with the fact that he was young uh, and I was around his age at the time, I, I thought that that was awesome. And again, I didn't know much about Formula One, right? I knew, I, I knew a lot about motor racing, but I didn't know a lot about Formula One. But then having seen him mature to be the sort of like en- engineer racer, you know, he sits, he sits in the paddock, he's making engineering decisions, and he's probably making those decisions um, more so than any other driver on the grid. That was awesome, right? And, and so I, I kind of see myself in that boat, that engineering leader, or uh, maybe I'm not in the driver's seat anymore, which kind of gets me away from that battle. But the idea mm-hmm. is, is that uh, my engineers can tell me, I, I hope that I can continue to have it so that the engineers on my teams can continue to tell me things. And I understand um, um, in light of business context as well, um, so that we can all win that race. So, so what you're telling me is your engineers would never have you say something like, leave me alone. I know what I'm doing. Uh, (laughs) you know, if I said that to my engineers, uh, I'm sure I'd get some backlash. Um, but I probably have said it before, um, um, and and, in prior roles. Um, but if my engineers told me that I'd take a step back and listen, (laughs) Oh, yeah, you got to love Kimi Raikkonen. He's amazing. He's also another amazing driver. I mean, I think there's a lot of amazing, amazing drivers on the grid. And it's, uh, you have, you know, uh, the GOAT. I mean, he is the GOAT. You can be a Michael Schumacher fan, but if you want to talk about eras, this era's GOAT is, 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 is Hamilton. And you have Verstappen, who's the new kid on the block, um, who, who's giving everybody a hard time on the grid. Um, and you have Charles Leclerc, who's, who's probably the next sort of champion in a great car. And then you have everybody else, right? Uh, Ricciardo, the the clown on the grid, and you—it's just—it's such an exciting time to watch F1. I feel it's always been exciting, but I think now since it's so front and center, and thank you Netflix for bringing America to it, it's a it's a it, it's it's a good time to be an F1 fan. No, I, absolutely. I've I've been an F1 fan going back to the early '90s. Um, I grew up around racing. My dad ran a three-quarter sprint midget car up in the Northeast. Um, so I kind of have it in my blood. Um, but, it, you know, 
I think it's exciting to see Americans really take to F1. Um, you know, I think the American mantra is, well, let's watch NASCAR and let's watch the Rocks and Yahoo. But I think people that are really racing aficionados get it, right? They get that it's a chess match. They get that the technology in these cars and what these drivers have to do to prepare is just incredible. Um, my, my hat's off to every one of them. Um, so, you know, here's the big question. Why aren't we doing this interview in Miami this weekend? Two, $3,000 tickets at ticket release. <laughs> I, I did try. Um, it just didn't work out. And I typically, you know, it's funny, uh, but the, the first race I went to was in Montreal, um, which was a lot of fun. And, and, and I, and I think that, well, you know, we saw last year in Austin, how much of a celebrity fest, uh, F1 had become because it's been a celebrity fest in Europe, but, but now in the United States, uh, everyone's there. And now that you're in Miami, it's going to be like the who's who is there. Uh, and, and I think that really drove up the prices. So there's always next year. So I think if we do a follow-up conversation, we got to have a, a conversation on the paddock. Absolutely. Well, you know, uh, been to Coda. Coda is a great track. Excited to see what they're going to do in Vegas. Um, if if it's a circus in Miami, I can't even imagine what it's going to be like in Vegas. Well, it's going to be a much it's going to be a much faster track. That's for sure. I think I think they said it was it's like th- almost like two and a half miles of straights. Got to love big DRS zones. I love it. Awesome. Listen, uh, last two things. Number one, sure. I want to I want to flip the tables. Is there anything you want to ask me? I put you on the spot a couple of times. I, I'm going to give you the return option. Yeah. So, you know, you, you mentioned, you mentioned, you know, your background in, in sort of the AI space. Um, and I'm not entirely familiar with your product, but, you know, kind of thinking about like how you're sort of protecting data um, within a CRM, what uses do you see for AI ML um, for your product, right? If you were to look in the future or even today, you don't have to dig into the details, but how can AI and ML help? You know, it, it's it's an interesting conundrum for us. So one of the things that we're known for in the industry is being a data operations platform that doesn't store the data, right? We're a pass-through technology. We encrypt it. We, what goes through the pipe is not our business, right? Our job is to make sure it gets there securely and curated and so on. But if we're going to leverage AI and ML technologies, we've got to do that either on de-identified data or based on metadata, right? And understand those patterns. And so that's that's an area that we're looking at very closely. Um, but our, our flagship is all about doing it securely, doing it at a scalable clip. So um, we'll, we'll see where we go with, with it from an AI ML perspective. But I, I can imagine... Uh, Working with a lot of fintech firms, one of the commonalities that we see is understanding broad activity data, whether it's conversations, meetings, how many meetings does it take to close a deal kind of stuff, who, what customer segments should we spend more time with or less time with, right? Those are things that AI can give us a clue to that maybe we're not getting today. It's, it's not just about next best action on an individual account basis, it's next best action about how do we better align the business to secure more investors or secure more share of their wallet, right? Those are the kinds of things I think we're thinking about. So you brought up a couple of interesting points that I want to double click on. 
One, you mentioned disparate data sources, phone calls, emails, uh, uh, data that might be generated as, 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 as a part of certain operational things such as, you know, clicking a website and data being fed in there or, or manually entered, right? So I think that there's that piece. You mentioned financial institutions. I'm not making an assumption of size, but, but I, when I think about financial institution, I think, you know, large databases of this data. And, and, and ever-growing databases of this data. And then you mentioned sort of thinking about the analysis of that data. And so the one thing that hits me then is you have all of these sort of disparate um, data sources that are large and likely not the same, and you have to do all this processing. How do you do that at scale? You know, how does your, how does your business scale when you think about your sort of technology environment? How do you make this all work for all of your customers? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So we've, one of the things that our customers have asked us to push the envelope on is scale. Um, so one of our customers, I won't mention who they are, process either create or change over 3 million meetings on Mondays, <laughs> right? I mean, can consider that. Now, who they're meeting with and why they're meeting with those clients is not necessarily something we're concerning ourselves with. But what can we learn about why those meetings are being scheduled or rescheduled or moved around? And, you know, those are the kind of things that we're, we're interested in. But why does that need to, if we're updating those meetings and we're doing it at scale, why is that important? Well, the reason it's important is you've got a large number of automated tools now for customers to schedule time with you, as an example, right? You don't just walk into a bank anymore and say, I want to open up a debit account. You go to the portal, you set an appointment to meet with a banker, right? And, and thanks COVID and, and thanks all that stuff. Um, but if your calendar is not being synchronized into the sales, in this case, let's say a Salesforce event calendar rapidly, you risk the run of double bookings, missing meetings, et cetera, because somebody scheduled time with you that wasn't really available, but it just hadn't been synchronized yet. The, the secret sauce on how we get that level of performance, we can share it at a different time. <laughs> um, but we've worked, we've, we've worked really hard at it so that we've got customers that have north of, let's say, 25, 30,000 individuals processing calendars at scale. And those are synchronizing in less than two minutes um, at scale, which, which is far better than we've seen in the industry in quite a long time. I'll be sure. I'll be sure that on the Yield podcast, which we do have, uh, uh, shame, shameless plug, uh, to talk to you about that 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 aspect of of Riva because I'm super interested always at technology stacks at scale and securing them, and so uh, that'd be pretty cool to talk awesome. about. Awesome. Awesome. So, last question I've got for you, and we're going to end right on time. Is there anything that you want the listeners to know? That we haven't talked about already. I'll give you the open mic. That's a that's a interesting thing. I thought my audience was you, but um, <laughs> um, but 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 to be to be more clear, right? I, I think I think a lot of, and I hope lots of fintechs and, and health techs and, and and regulated companies hear this. Um, it, it's really up to uh, the security teams and leadership to build a, a, a practical and trustworthy sort of security team, right? Have folks understand why you're doing things, provide context. Uh, this way you're not looking down the bottom of the barrel of, a, of an SEC examination because 
I think security is an organizational problem and, and, and not a team problem. Um, the regulatory bodies are beginning to understand that, which is why these new rules are being drafted. Um, and so find, you know, find team members or, or, or work with individuals who help share that narrative, right? Bring your business context and security together. Uh, uh, just like every company is becoming a software company or is a software company with a, with a, with a, with a different discipline, software needs to be secured. It is not easy. It is, it is, it is fairly complex. Uh, and I think the industry also sees that. So it's creating easier and easier tools, uh, to make that a reality. But, but yeah, I mean, I think the big thing, if there's one thing that I'd like to tell the audience is, uh, especially those in, in founder positions, work with your technology teams and your security teams and, and, and your sort of risk and compliance teams uh, to find a security framework that works for you and start as early as possible. That's great advice. Ezra, it was a pleasure meeting you and spending the last hour with you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I did. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for tuning in to the RevTech Revolution podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to rate, review, and share this with colleagues who would benefit from it. If you would like to learn more about how Reva can help you improve your customer data operations, check out RevaEngine.com.